welcome to the City of the Great King podcast with your host, Tyler Sawatsky. That's me. Hello. And good evening, if it is evening when you are listening. We're doing something new today. See, if you just listen through any of the different podcast formats, you wouldn't know this. But I'm recording on live video right now. Mm. This is on Facebook Live. So we're just going to test things out, see if I can get some video. Although my webcam is not the greatest. So, like I said, it's a complete test. But let's see how it goes. Thank you for stopping by. We are doing a series right now called The Kingdom Builder. We are looking at characteristics, attitudes, actions of people who are productive in God's kingdom. So there are a whole lot of Christians. There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians. And if you were to package together the list of their life's activities and categorized what was done productively as a Christian, I think many of us would find that we spend a whole lot more times building our own kingdoms than we do building Christ's kingdom or being used by Christ to spread his kingdom. And we all do this to an extent. We have to learn how to submit to God. It is against our sinful nature to just submit freely to our Lord. We have to learn that. We have to learn to be submissive to our king. Rebellion is at, is at our heart. And I think the, the kind of paradox or the ironic part of all of this is the more we fail to submit to our Lord, and which means we're building our own kingdom. If we're not submitting to the Lord and building his kingdom, that means we're building our own. But the more we are building our own kingdom, the less productive we are at kingdom building in its entirety. Your kingdom cannot stand on its own. And I can give you the biggest reason why your kingdom, whatever you're building, if your life is just all about you, it will not stand. And the number one reason why is because Jesus Christ is reigning until every enemy has been put under his feet. And any rival kingdom is an enemy of Christ. Which means it has to be defeated. Which means it has to go under Christ's feet. What I want to do today is go through a passage... This passage is the most quoted passage in the New Testament out of the Old Testament. So this comes from the Old Testament, but the New Testament writers will quote this frequently, more frequently than anything else, and it's Psalm 110. Since the New Testament authors are so in love with Psalm 110, I think we would do well to, to read it often, there's a, it's not even very long. It's only seven verses. But these seven verses get a lot of attention in the New Testament. And as I read them, I think you'll see why. If you do have a Bible, it's worth going to. Because what we're talking about today, one of the characteristics of a kingdom builder is that you are unafraid of the world. Try to think about the people who are the most productive in terms of their Christian witness, as far as we can tell. 
or even the people who don't have anything public going on, but they're just a faithful Christian, and you know them, and their witness is one of love, service, good deeds, worship, and adoration to God. Just those godly people. And those types of people aren't afraid to live for Christ and to apply Christian thinking into the various spheres of life. And that's exactly correct. It's the people who are unafraid of the world who are going to make the biggest impact, who are most... Um, who are available the most. Because the more afraid we are, the more we retreat, the more we retreat, the less usable we are. The less usable we are, the less productive we are in Christ's kingdom. And so, being unafraid of the world is central to being a citizen in God's city. And Psalm 110 is going to help us get there. First of all, it's titled A Psalm of David. This is David's psalm. He is a king. He was a king. He was a great and mighty king. Israel looked up to David's rulership as an example for what the future Messiah was going to be like. And it starts like this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, the Lord says to my Lord. Some people have tried to say that this is referring to David. However, as we've already mentioned, this is a psalm of David. This is not talking about David himself. The Lord says to David's Lord, to my Lord. So this is the father saying to a future king, a future ruler, the next David, if you will. Now that Lord is going to say to the future David, or the father is going to say to that future Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Anybody who's gone to Sunday school will know the answer to this question. Who is it that's sitting at the right hand of the Father? We know that it's Jesus Christ the Son, who was the Messiah, the second David, the better David. After he was raised from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, victorious, having defeated the power of the devil, the power of the grave, and the power of sin. Jesus Christ, the Lord, is at the Father, the Lord's right hand. So this was what was going to happen to the future David, of this David. And he's this Lord, which is Jesus Christ, is going to be sitting there at the right hand until all of his enemies are under his footstool. The Father is having the Son at his side until all the enemies here are a footstool for him. This means that as of this moment right now, Christ is reigning and the Father is putting all of his enemies under him. In real time, right now, in history. What is history? It is the progressive spreading of God's kingdom. The putting of Christ's enemies under his feet, so then this age can end. So he's going to stay there until every enemy is under his foot. Verse 2, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So the Lord, again, sends forth from Zion, Zion being the city of David, uh, Zion being uh, also referred to as a holy mountain, Zion being also referred to as God's people, the people of the Lord. So Zion is, is interesting. But essentially, he's sending forth from his place of rulership, 
And then it says, your mighty scepter, that's the, the thing that the king holds to display his authority. It's an authoritative symbol. It's a physical symbol. It's a physical representation of his authority. When he's holding that scepter and he makes a command, it's like it's coming out of that physical representation and it goes out. Um, we might say the scepter from Ottawa that Justin Trudeau holds. Ugh, I don't like using that comparison when I'm reading the Bible. Um, the Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Again, this is referring to that future David, which of course is Christ. The New Testament is very clear about this. Christ right now is ruling in the midst of his enemies. This means that everything on earth that is against Christ is ultimately still coming under his rulership. And there's only two paths for every enemy of Christ. The first is going to be that they faithfully turn. They repent and turn to the Lord and su submit to his rulership. And the second is that they get obliterated. They get destroyed. He's ruling in the midst of his enemies. That means he gets to call the final shot. You're not a ruler if you don't have authority. You don't get to call the shots. And so Christ, as a ruler of his enemies right now, is calling them to submit or to be destroyed. It will happen one day in this life. Well, of course, we all die. We're all subject to death. And that's a big part of him executing judgment on his enemies. But there's, there's more to that as well in terms of everlasting punishment. He's, he rules even in the midst of his enemies, though. He gets the final say. Verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, that's a nice poetic verse. Your people will offer themselves freely. One of the things that Christians can sometimes struggle with is as I mentioned earlier, the constant, regular, free submission to our Lord. Even as Christians, the ones who bear his name, we, can, we frequently struggle with sin. We frequently struggle with pride. We struggle with wanting to be more important than others. In short, we don't offer ourselves freely, but we begrudgingly go. And this is, go to the Lord, that is. And this is natural. There's a lot of talk, even in the New Testament, about Christ being at the door, or even him being the door. The battle in the Christian life, in terms of discipleship and sanctification, is always at the door. It's always that first step. The, the moment that you're, you're most tempted not to go to church is on Sunday morning when you have to get up and start getting ready. You, you have to go through the door. Metaphorically speaking, you have to take that first step, and once you get going, once you're in your vehicle and you're driving there, then it's not it's not so bad. The battle is at the door. It's the same thing with prayer. When we're we all agree that we should be in prayer, it's commanded of us. But the hardest part is just getting started. A lot of us don't pray uh, frequently. We all say that we don't pray frequently enough, and the battle's at the door. It's that first step. Once you get going into prayer. And you see what a benefit it is, and, and you, you recognize that we are obeying Christ when we pray. The battle's at the door. 
It's always taking that first step, and we will try not to go through that door in various areas of our sanctification and living the Christian life. But it says here that Christ's people are going to offer themselves freely on the day of his power. When was the day of Christ's power? Well, I think he showed a lot of power, but the day of the power, I think, hooks up with some other Old Testament passages that talk about the day of the Lord. This day when the Messiah was going to come and exact vengeance and bringing righteousness and rule. And, of course, Christ came to do exactly that stuff. The complete fulfillment of all of these things in literal terms, in physical worldly terms, is still being played out. But the victory's already won. The vengeance is already declared. And the, the Messiah is, is ruling now. And so, the day of his power, I think, is the... Uh, in one sense, just the age of when the Messiah came and started doing these things. It's like when John the Baptist's disciples were asking, tell us if you're the Messiah, if we should be, if there's another one to come. And Christ doesn't just say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm him. Just, yeah, go tell him, yeah, I'm him. Nothing to worry about. No, 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 no. He says the blind see, the deaf hear. Miracles are happening. The type of things that the book of Isaiah says were going to happen in the day of the Lord. The prisoners were going to be set free. The blind were going to see. And so John, knowing scripture, when he gets that report, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, so he has come. He is the one. So in one sense, it was just the age of his time here. And then in the other sense, of course, being the day of his power, the day that he defeated death. The day he defeated the grave. When he came out, when he was resurrected. The day of his power. And we do so with in holy garments, it says. I'm not going to comment on that. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Um, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews is going to pick up that idea a lot. Now, Melchizedek is important because he was a priest who was not a Jew, but he was a priest who showed up and a ruler who showed up to Abraham before Abraham got the covenant with God. And we don't know where Melchizedek comes from. We don't know his lineage, his background, what... We don't know. He appears and he takes on this almost eternal mystique about him. His priesthood's forever because we don't know... Um, we don't know how it, where it came from or what happened to it afterwards. It's like an eternal priesthood. And that's the connecting idea with Christ about how he's an, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, it's referring to Christ, of course. Verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. The kings of earth are being steadily brought under Christ's rulership. As he said, he's ruling, and this isn't just a rule in terms of he's ruling in the church. Again, he's ruling in the midst of his enemies, back from verse 2, and now he's shattering kings. This is something he does now. He is shattering kings. And kings, that's why it says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the wrath. Everyone has to do this, including kings. His rulership is total. Verse 6, he will execute judgment among the nations. 
filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. All right, well, there's some graphic stuff. He will execute judgment among the nations. That's basically what we've already been saying. He is their ruler, even if they've declared themselves as an enemy of him. Now, filling them with corpses. That's interesting. Where do we ever get the idea that the spread of Christ's kingdom and his rulership is going to be one where you just see bodies all on the floor? You know, let the bodies hit the floor? That, that's not really what we see. Well, that's... If you think about a corpse, he's going to fill the nations with corpses. A corpse is a dead body, of course. Now, Christ is going to end up saying something to Nicodemus, where he says there's only one way into the kingdom of heaven. Remember what he tells him that you, you, you have to have happen to you? you got to be born again. Now, to be born means you weren't alive and you became alive you or you came into the world you uh, you weren't and then you are it's the death to life type of idea and when he says that we need to be born again we die in a sense before we come into Christ's kingdom we die to the old man to the old nature to our sin nature we die to the kingdom of Satan to be reborn into the kingdom of Christ so the corpses, the, the nations being filled with corpses, isn't uh, God enlisting a bunch of machine gunners to go out there and just light people up with bullets. That's not the idea. The idea is spiritual in nature. They're, it's going to be filled with those who die to their sin and are raised with Christ. Here, they experience the new birth. And that is going to be, uh, I mean, that's part of... Christ's victory manual. He is going by with the sword of the spirit. You know what the sword of the spirit is? This is an idea from, from Ephesians chapter 6. He, he talks about these this war type stuff. And in Ephesians chapter 6, he's going to talk about the armor of God. And he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We're supposed to go out and slay people, slay the earth, the nations of the earth. But the slaying is obviously, it's not physical. The slaying is with the sword of the spirit. It is with the word of God. And we get this, uh, that's an important thing when you read Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, Christ has this army. He's the, the rider on the white horse, and he has this army with him. And it says in, verse, in Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. There's again, Christ makes war with righteousness. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Of course, that's Christ. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So in this vision of the rider on the white horse, Christ got this sword coming out of his, or the, he's got the sword coming out of his mouth. He strikes the nation. Imagine trying to do that. I just put my hand in front of my mouth like it's a sword in case you can't see the video. Imagine trying to do that. That's a very silly image. But 
Of course, this isn't talking about a literal sword coming out of a literal mouth. This is talking about the word of God coming out of our mouth. And that is what he's going to use to strike down the nations. He's converting the nations. He's putting them under his feet. So that's the whole idea. So he'll shatter chiefs. Even the chiefs he will shatter. The, the rulers of the wide earth he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore he will lift up his head. And I won't comment on that. But the New Testament quotes Psalm 110 more than anything else. And what is it emphasizing? The complete rulership, reign, power, and effectiveness of our Lord Jesus. There is no enemy on earth that can withstand him, that's going to outlast him, that's going to beat him. And already, I hope this is making you think of all the different things that we fear in this life. All the ways of the world which we lack courage. And that could be an alternate title for this. Like Being unafraid of the world means to be courageous. Means that we should be bold. We should, we should be full of courage when we go into what we might say are dark places. Because this is the person who's with us. Is this ruler who rules in the midst of enemies. And if you are a Christian... Your true enemies are his enemies. And I say true because we can sometimes think we have enemies on earth that are petty things. And especially if you don't interact much with the world, you will end up making enemies of other Christians. Those aren't Christ's enemies. Christ's enemies are those who don't submit to him. Now, it's certainly right to look at our brothers and sisters in the household of God and point out areas where they may not be submitting to Christ. And when we do this in a loving way, that's a very effective and proper thing to do. Judgment does begin at the household of God, as Peter says. But I think Christians, especially those who are wanting to be productive in God's kingdom, we know that we have to live amongst the world. We raise children in a society that is going less and less, being, being less and less Christian by the decade. That's becoming more and more hostile to the Christian faith and to, and to traditional Christian belief, which is just biblical belief. He's the one who's with us. And oh, we can fear if we we're going to have enough money. We fear what would happen if we had a tough conversation with somebody. We fear how our relationships go and how, what that's going to do to us. We fear how our children are going to turn out. We even fear other things. You know what's coming up soon? It's a ugh, kind of a holiday, pseudo-holiday. Halloween's coming up. And I don't want this to be the point of the episode, but there are a whole lot of Christians who are... I think very imbalanced on the idea of Halloween. Uh, give a short history lesson. Think of the medieval church. There was they, they built these things on their churches called gargoyles. You know what a gargoyle is? I always think of a French church and it's got that, that little gnome looking gray thing on, on the top and it's got this tongue that like winds out and it looks really really ridiculous. And 
that was done to try to teach people that the demonic doesn't have power over us. The Apostle John says that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The Holy Spirit is the one who is in you, is greater than any spirit in the world. Demonic or angelic. You cannot be overcome by Satan if you're in the Lord. You can't. Because he in, who is in you is greater. And so the medieval church made these gargoyles out of, to represent the demonic to try to show we don't need to be afraid. Satan cannot bind us, can't overcome you if you have the Holy Spirit in you. So what are we so scared of? We have the most powerful person, being, essence that could that, that, that's out there in us and ruling over our enemies. But we can get so scared to evangelize. Now, when the medieval church made those gargoyles, it only took a couple generations for them to miss the point of why that was being done and thought that they were actually depicting what they thought the demonic was like, that they're just these silly gargoyle toys looking things, and they completely missed the point. And the connection, to finish up my Halloween point, I don't think we need to fear all the stuff that the world does regarding Halloween. Have no fear. The Holy Spirit is greater than any spirit that the world is thinking that they're engaging in or actually engaging in that day on Halloween. I don't think Christians need to fear it at all. Now there's another passage I want to turn to, and this one's out of Isaiah. Isaiah 41. Um, I'm only going to comment on a few verses, but I'll read a little bit more than I read out of Psalm 110. It's titled, Fear Not, For I Am With You. That's fitting for what I'm talking about. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? Rhetorical question. Of course, it's the Lord. He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword. Hey, there's that idea again. Like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. It's giving a bunch of, uh, a bunch of these, these types of questions and saying what he's doing. Uh, who could it be? Uh, as, as, and then he's going to answer it. He's going to finish this, that part, verse 4, by saying, Who's the one who performs these things and calls the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. With the first generation and with the last generation. He's with them all. He calls them. It is he, the Lord. Verse 5. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Ooh, the coastlands. So the coastlands are supposed to listen in silence. We got that from verse 1. And now in verse 5, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. And the ends of the earth tremble. And they should. We should. There's, a, there's an aspect in which we are supposed to have fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
Now, this isn't the fear that makes you cower in a corner. This is a, a reverential fear. This is a fear that draws you to him where you remember who you're talking to. It's a respectful fear. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong! The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good! And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. We strengthen each other. When we have the Lord, we turn to our neighbors and we mutually uplift and strengthen one another. Where two or three cores are put together is tough to break. Something like that is in Ecclesiastes. Um, where two or three agree on anything, it, it is done. Uh, all the talk of the Proverbs about having companions and counselors and all these types of things. When we work in these types of relationships together in the Lord, that is a very strong thing. And it's a very biblical thing. So, re related to our topic today... If you're somebody who struggles with a lot of fear, think of the Christian friends and mentors that you have. If you have a Christian friend, draw near to them. And what what's going to overcome you if you are strengthening each other, edifying each other? Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. So be strong. Now, this is the type of show where I know a lot of my listeners... I know a lot of you personally, and I'm telling you, be strong. What have you to fear? We reign in a day of a bunch of enemies who are being put under Christ's feet, one way or another. Be strong. Verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Oh, wow. But you, Israel, my servant, the one whom I've chosen. He's going to go now specific into Israel, specific into his people, his covenant people. And he's going to have some words for them. The offspring of Abraham, who, how is he going to describe Abraham? My friend. Abraham was God's friend. God's friend. Think about that status of being a friend to the one who creates and rules. Usually you don't get to be friends with kings. You don't get to be friends with rulers. You just serve them or die. Usually you don't get to be their friend. But if you're a friend of a king, you would have access to their protection, to their provision, their providence, their kindness. You would have access to all their good things. I'm planning a, a trip out east really soon. In a couple weeks I'm going to be going uh, out east. Nova Scotia, and I lived there for a time. I lived there for like eight months or something like that. So it wasn't very long. I didn't have deep roots in the community or anything, but I worked just a community job there, and I had a manager at the place that I worked at. He's not a Christian, but we got along great. We had very good rapport. I, I'd like to have good rapport with everybody I meet, and we had a very fine relationship. I worked hard for him and, and all of that. And then I moved away. And, you know, when you move away, you don't keep up relationships the same way. Well, I messaged him. Instead of staying in a hotel, I just sent him a message. What do you think? I'm going to be up there for a few days. What do you, th what do you think about uh, me staying with you? And he said, brother, you are welcome anytime. See, 
this guy's not even a Christian, but if you have a friendship, this is the type of thing that a friend does for another friend. And so this guy is going to let me into his home. He's going to provide for me, and I'm very thankful for that. And then here's Abraham. He's God's friend. I think of just what this non-Christian is doing for me as a friend. Think of what God does for his friends. Now, is Abraham God's only friend? Oh, you'll remember Jesus with his disciples. He's sitting with them. His, his execution is coming near. And he says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. The servants of the Lord are Christ's friends. The one who reigns and rules and establishes his, his peace and justice is your friend. So just like my non-Christian friend is providing me room for a few days, just like being friend of a king gives you access to protection, provision, you have everything because you are a friend of the king. He looks out for his friends. He is the truest of friends. Tell me again why you fear evangelizing. Tell me again why you fear being somewhere where there might be non-Christians. Verse 9, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, then no place is too far for him to call, to rule, to reign, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. God still hasn't cast him off, by the way. Now, ethnic Israel, of course, uh, stepped away uh, from the Lord. They're, they're cut off from the olive tree. You can read Romans about that. But God's covenant people remain not cast off. True Israel has always been with the Lord, and those are those who are binded to him in faith. And since God's covenant community expanded to include the Gentiles, which is most of us, we are those who are chosen and, can, and are not cast off. Because God's eternal. When he says something, it's eternal. Uh, we get that even right from Isaiah 40, one chapter before this, in verse 28, it says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So he eternally holds you, his chosen. Fear not, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Wow. God himself tells you not to fear. It's not even just me, a man, telling you not to fear and to be strong. God himself tells you that you don't have to be because he will strengthen you and help you. It's not a maybe. It's not even conditional. It says he will. If you are those who are united to him in faith, he will help you. He upholds you. Now, you can go through a lot of suffering, but you'll be upheld in the end. That's amazing. Verse 11, I'm almost, I'm almost done. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. Okay, so this idea can make us a bit uncomfortable. Anyone against you will be put to shame and confounded. 
Those who strive against you will be nothing. They shall perish. You'll seek those who contend with you, but you won't find them. They'll be nothing. See what God's going to do to your enemies? He's not talking about Satan here. He's talking about the enemies of God's people. Now, I got enemies in my life, no doubt. And God's going to God's going to put put them to shame and confound them. I'll look for them one day and they won't be there anymore. Every single thing that you fear will not be a fear one day. It'll be dealt with. Now, I'm not getting into all the details of what they all what all these fears could be, but you know what they are. I know what mine are. And they won't be fears and enemies forever. So why fear now? Those who strive against you will be nothing and will perish. God promises that. 13. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Contextually, he was saying this to his people Israel, and they understood that to be referring to them. Isaiah writes, and people get exiled, and they come back, and Isaiah writes over a long period of time. He saw a lot, and he's trying to encourage these exiles. Don't worry, you'll come back. Your enemies will be dealt with. There's no Persia anymore, right? There's no Babylon anymore. There's no Assyria anymore. There's no Rome anymore. There's no Seleucids anymore, as in the, the empire and those, and, and those peoples. God defeated all those enemies, and he's still doing it for his covenant people. He's the one who holds our right hand. I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. I say, fear not, I am the one who helps you. The productive kingdom builder is one who does not fear the world, who is unafraid, who will have conversations that may make you uncomfortable, who will evangelize to the world, who will even serve those who it might not be the most convenient to serve. You'll stop looking at time as just your own resource, but a, a resource to give back to God. Same with your money, your children. I think 20 years ago, I remember I was young. I, I mostly read about this now, uh, now to know this, but a big issue seemed to be the spread of Islam. All these Muslims were coming to the West, and they were going to radicalize, and we're going to have all these terror attacks, and and the spread of Islam was just such a big threat. And then I look now at the state of the state of Islam in the West today, and it looks pretty secular to me. I guess that's the power of our secular culture. And we we as Christians have been dealing with this for a long time, where our our kids secularize. And oh, let's turn that down. Hey, turn down. Um, that was the the outro music. That tells me that tells me I gotta finish up. But that was an enemy. That was like everyone was focused on. Oh, the Muslims are coming. They're gonna do all these things. And where do you hear about that now? Not so much. I hear a lot about secularism now and liberalism, and rightly so. It, it deserves to be focused upon, and it's gonna be defeated. Don't walk around as some defeated Christian as though Christ's enemies have any say over him. 
we learn from Psalm 110, he gets to call the shots. Christ calls the shots on what's going to end up happening here. And so, he's the one who helps us. Fear not, I'm the one who helps you. It is a marvelous thing that we can get help from the creator of the universe. And so why we have all these fears in our lives? And of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says it well. You fear what you're going to wear. You fear what you're going to eat. You fear what you're going to drink. You fear all these different things. And the Lord provides them all. Anybody who's been a Christian for any stretch of time can look back in their lives and see a pattern of God's faithfulness. I've seen it time and time again. Constantly. I see the Lord's faithfulness. So be strong. Be unafraid of the world. You have the most courageous and righteous spirit in you, because it's the Holy Spirit, it's not you. But through him, gain that courage. Gain that hope. Don't walk around defeated. Walk around, because you're victorious. In Christ, we're victorious. The victory is his. Every enemy is being put under his feet. So walk around victorious and fearless. And that is how we live as a citizen in the kingdom of God. I want to thank you for listening to this episode. Appreciate everybody who listens in. I hope this video quality is okay. Come back next week and we'll hear something else. Thanks for listening. God bless you. Go in the nations. Bye-bye.